0: Hi, this is Paul, and the video I did earlier this week uh, had a little clip from Malcolm and Simone Collins. I had never heard of them before, but as always, you all send me the most interesting things. Uh, The same person that sent me this sent me another very interesting interesting video with Jordan Peterson on and a couple that uh, I... It's, what's very interesting is that a bunch of these channels, they're, they're small YouTube channels, but you get the sense that these people are living out there in the online world in other ways. So I am something of a digger, and so I started digging into Basecamp uh, with Simone and Malcolm Collins, and lots of videos. You know, it's not a very big channel, um, uh, 7,400 7, subs. Um, lots of videos, many videos with some of them 2k um, 1k, other videos smaller um, videos in the in the triple digits and then and then I noticed that oh wait a minute this this channel has a history. this channel goes back a long ways. Simone has been doing YouTubes for quite a while and, and then eleven years ago, eleven years. This is old timey YouTube, and um, and then I saw the first one of them together, and I thought, oh, that's got to be interesting. Let's take a look at that.
1: Wow it has been a long time since I have uploaded anything here and that's because a lot has happened for example when I first was posting videos here I had this mission to fall in love and have my heart broken in one year and learn how to date and then I met this guy and I fell in love with him he broke my heart and then something really unexpected happened Um, we decided to get married and we're gonna get married in summer of 2015 and we also decided to start a business together so I quit my job and he, he quit his other plans and we started an art commissioning business oh. called Art Corgi so we do actually make some videos related to that if you want to still see stuff by me uh, our channel about our startup and what we've learned from starting our own company is called startup style And we also have a channel about how our relationship started and what we've learned from that. And it's called the happy couple. So if you want to get more updates from the weird girl who you once saw videos from, you can do so by subscribing to both or one of those channels. Again, it's
0: now I didn't go and dig up those channels. I'm not even sure those channels could be dug up, but I did see in fact that they've, they've had, uh, they they were on Pierce Morgan at one point. They're super into this postnatalism. In fact, there was a Vice article about them back in April of 2023. Uh, Simone and Malcolm Collins, the elite couple and pronatalists who are breeding to save the world, are also prof- prolific rhetorers and unstoppable posters. Um, super online. And. You know, anime is going to trigger some of you. I I know that. Um, A good friend of mine said anime is right next door to, and then I won't finish his sentence. But uh, yeah, Um, and and so and then I found, I haven't. Then I found this conversation with um, Alex um, Kachuda, who, you know, I heard heard a bit about her before. And um, I, I've never really followed her too closely, but it was interesting that they showed up here. So it's just very interesting sort of looking at where people sort of arise and how they transform. And of course, I've always got this sort of profilicity stuff in the back of my mind. They get a little bit into the background of how they met on, on Alex's channel.
2: The background here how did you find each other because you are kind of a, a kind of a, a hydra uh you have the same project you're very much aligned you know most people myself included were just kind of like you know fumbling in the dark and you know maybe we we gather some things but you guys seem to have a very structured approach to everything <laughs> you're literally writing books about it simone you want to go over the story of how we met
1: yeah sure i'll i'll <laughs> to the rundown um so yeah you're totally right we're way too weird about the way we do everything <laughs> so the way it came down for us meeting was i turned 24 and had never really dated anyone before i mean people probably thought they were dating me but i was too autistic to actually realize that so whoops um she and never so,
3: kissed anyone never had sex that's what she means like like never went out there completely oh. clueless
1: so okay. i decided that Even though I was going to live alone forever, because that would be amazing that I would first fall in love and have my heart broken so I could say I tried it and it was underwhelming. And, you know, then people wouldn't look at me and be so, you know, weird about it. You know, like, oh, that poor, poor girl has never known love. So
0: pause. When we had our Barbie live stream last week, uh, Sam commented me, told me about this Mary Harrington, Taylor Swift piece, which, of course, I looked up because I wasn't not going to look that up. And it's, again, it's, um, it's a common knowledge that women love, like love stories and those which gain st- iconic status, tend towards tragedy. Why? It's just the tragedy that speaks to the emotional intensity of being young. I'm stayed middle-aged now, but I remember the exquisite agony of teenage unrequited love, not to mention the perverse draw of sexual liaisons too edgy, kinky, or otherwise intense to last. She basically talks about how part of the the Taylor Swift um, story is, is leading towards, in some ways, kind of a, a dark, a dark romantic vision of hmm, well, the conclusion. Since I was an adolescent in the 90s, the internet has eaten most of the culture and normalized mass embodiment. Perhaps it's no wonder so many of us, and especially young women, now experience these interconnected longings, first to escape embodiment and then, relatedly, to be dissolved into passionate intensity. Taylor Swift's genius is her capacity to give catchy tunes to that sweet, painful, multifaceted longing for something other or higher than what's in front of us. Now, this is rather ironic given... The goal of these two, which is very much remember and body. On the surface, her work recounts relatable romantic highs and lows, but its 800-year undertow implicitly glorifies those who renounce any possibility of happiness in this world in exchange for the exaltation that comes from seeking something higher, even if the price of of reunion with the divine must be death. For young women who thrill to this promise, don't even realize that they've cra- they, they crave is not sexual or romantic, but spiritual. It's the cruelest imaginable way to both promising and denying relief. But that's the fault of the age, not of the 21st century's foremost troubadour, Taylor Swift. Now, so she's got you know again this this sort of young, um, dark, romantic fatalism, but of course it doesn't happen. Now, I actually recorded a bunch of this and it wasn't recording. Um, that's that's one of the things I'm going to conquer next year. I've lost way too many things, recording and not really recording. Part of what's fascinating about this story is that the narrative of onlineness is disembodiment and nihilism and antinatalism, and these two, that are about as online as you can imagine, are going the other way. It's it's onlineness. Now, all of us are formed and shaped. We, we, we absorb this first draft map of the world, you know, mostly from our parents. And then, of course, as bit by bit, we begin to look beyond our parents, And right now, a lot of that looking beyond is looking at screens and absorbing things in screens. Walk through Hans Georg Mueller's nomenclature. Sincerity, he defines as living out the cultural, traditional, religious expectation of our group in which we are birthed and formed. Authenticity is the quest expressive individualism the quest to live out the secret sacred self and, and to to somehow always be checking that secret sacred self against the world to to it's the quest for authenticity which is sort of a back and forth inside and outside and when you find positive feedback coming back back then somehow you discover your true self profilicity adds the, the additional dimension of being watched and getting input from those watching you, and and shaping yourself to the camera, to the black mirror, and and these two seem deeply in the realm of pro-felicity.
1: So I created a scoring system. Uh, I created a competitive dating round at my office where you know you get points for like first base date that lasts longer than five hours or something to you know motivate me to get out there because dating is hard so i was dating very heavily i'd I'd keyword stuffed my okcupid profile at the time with (laughs) like sort of know your meme references because i knew exactly my target audience i was posing in film grade stormtrooper armor in my my photos so you know i so it's
0: so funny because of course many women are they're 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 navigating. We do our sense making through each other, and so part of the women reason women are always competing with each other, and they're navigating with each other, instead of let's say, to a degree, because women use men as proxies to peel off the top, right? And women are using men to push push each other up the hierarchy. Women are playing a different game over here, but they're still using each other for to in this in this mating competition
1: what I was in for um, and Malcolm similarly was on uh, a what he he would call a high throughput screening kind of campaign um, quest. Where... I was trying to do five dates
3: a week at least for a period of about two years
1: and so he told me basically that on our first date he sat across from me at dinner and he said well I'm not really looking to date. I'm looking for a wife, and I expect to find her this fall at Stanford, where there's a large pool of pre-vetted candidates. So he made <laughs> it both clear that he that he was looking for a wife, that he didn't think that I was that wife, um, because he was going to get one at Stanford, um, and that uh, you know he was really honest. And it was the first honest date I ever went on. Right? I mean, when you go on a date with someone, like typically, like it's they probably want to have sex with you, or they have some of. The-
0: now, honesty again. If there's something that's sort of emerging out of the meaning crisis, it's honesty. I mean, honesty is a hallmark of the Jordan Peterson movement. Tell the truth or at least don't lie. Uh, Jordan has many, many hours on the internet talking about uh, why it's so important to tell the truth and not just, and it's important to tell the truth so that you don't mess yourself up, so that you don't lose yourself. There's a lot of time in the in the recent Chris Williamson Jordan Peterson conversation about that
1: the thing but no one ever talks about that you talk about like anything else but what what people are actually there for which was for me so frustrating because I just wanted to know what people wanted um and I just thought that was great and I also thought it was perfect because that way I thought I could date him we would break up I, I forced him to set a breakup date with me and then he would go find his wife and I would live alone forever that particular place
0: I forced him to set a breakup date with me. These are two unusual individuals.
1: Plan completely fell apart. Um, we are very happily married. We've been together for uh, eleven years now, and we have three kids, going on hopefully seven. <laughs> so like, we're we're in it, um, and we love life together. But it was um, it was both very intentional but the the outcome was not what we had expected. And I think that's kind of the thing is we we plan to the nines and do try to intentionally think through everything, but we also rapidly iterate and update when we get new information. And it doesn't matter if it's about like a life partner or a philosophy or scientific information. Um, When we get new information, we adapt and we change our plans. We don't just stick to something because it's what we originally believed. Now, what she said there
0: is going to become super important when it comes to religion. Because as their scheme unfolds, it's a phenomenal story. I mean, remember what I said in a previous video? You say, Paul, there's only been 2,500 videos. How can I remember what you said in a previous video? No, 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 more recently. In that video that not a lot of you watched where I had the Chris Williamson, Constantine Kissin, the Chris Williamson, Jordan Peterson. Chris Williamson makes a really important point. Maybe I'll find that video.
4: The things I've been talking about in the live shows is your comparison group is incorrect. The fact that you know we have the opportunity to sit down and listen to anybody on the planet, right? The best minds, the best athletes, the best thinkers, the most articulate, that are alive right now or listen to the people that have died that were around when video cameras existed. And you can compare yourself to that group, Yeah, but that's not your comparison group. If you have the impetus to sit down and listen to me and you waffle on for three hours about these deep topics, these interesting ideas, you are so already selected out of the normal group. Mm-hmm. you're already asking yourself questions that the right questions. almost nobody almost nobody else is right but because your comparison group are people that are unbelievably high performing i remember before i started my podcast okay so i'd listen to to you or to sam or to joe and i'd think god their recall is is amazing it's so it, it's like they they've just got this eidetic memory and everything that they've ever read so there's so
0: there's a there's an idealization, there's a there's a sort of reaching for the ideal, but earlier there there's also the the forming of the internet. So earlier in the in the video earlier in the video, Chris is talking about the fact this this whole gym thing where where people are people are sort of calibrating with each other. You know, women are taking videos of themselves and they're looking at how often men look at them. And then if men look at them too often for them, then they're, you know, annoyed. It's the it's the gaze. It's the male gaze. Yada, yada. And yes, of course, that whole that whole Tom uh, Tom Brady Saturday Night Live skit, unless, of course, she wants she's she's there for the guy to want to look at her. But of course, the beauty means that everybody sees it. And she wants to be sort of a sharpshooter for the guy she wants. But what she's really doing is sending out a signal that everybody is seeing. So these two are just super online. And you can just see all of this stuff just building, 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 building.
2: Yeah. I mean, very interestingly, this is a very kind of similar strategy to one that I use. It wasn't so well structured. It wasn't so well thought out. It wasn't so, um, I guess, um, detailed and meticulous in its execution but <clears throat> that's pretty much what what both um me and my husband did we were very kind of uh with the keyword stuffing, that 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 rings very true. Like I definitely yes. did that with my OKCupid profile. That's where I met my husband. Um, and I, I just kind of I, I keep encouraging people to see these websites as as a tool because I feel like they've kind of taken on a a, a cultural life of their own. I mean, this, these
0: are but you can see the tooling of how many
2: other things in
0: these stories where they're they're just tooling at different levels. The profilificity levels are just layer after layer after layer
2: databases of people, many of them will be looking for similar things uh, to you. But I think people over optimize for um, for reach and for for mass appeal, like, you know, women posting cleavage shots, even though they want to get a husband. I mean, yes. you will get more engagement, I guess, if that's what you're optimizing for. But that's a vanity metric if you have to you want to find the one. So don't park your boobs <laughs> on, the, on the thing. That's not how you get it. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's, it's hard to convince people of this, but, uh, I think app dating is, is, can be very useful. I mean, it's, it's proven miraculous in my life and, you know, I'm now heading for baby number two myself and, you know, my marriage is great. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's app derived. It's, it's generated by the, the, the terrible algorithms, but Hey, it, it worked and I think it, it can work for other people, but they, they have to have a pragmatic approach to how to use this stuff. I mean, app dating has really
3: changed recently. And I think we need to be transparent about this. We found each other back in the old days of OKCupid okay before sure. the swipe dating revolution. And I saw a tweet recently that I really emphasized was where it said, you know, being, a, you know, in a, a, a happy relationship these days feels a bit like having caught the last chopper out of NOM. Like, I look yeah. at the people who are dating today in this, like, Skinner box swipe. Ba- the, I
0: get the sense this guy is really smart. Um he is he is really sharp. He's really intuitive. Um, but we're going to keep listening to him because, again, smart, smart is not all there is in terms of being right or being wise. But
3: he's really smart. Based ecosystem. And I don't know if I would have been able to be as effective in the dating pool in this current market.
2: It depends. I think I, I was, you know, I met my husband about six years ago and we were very much within the swiping system. I mean, we swiped on OKCupid, OkCupid Well, had already transformed into a <gasps> Tinder clone. Um, it did have a more, I guess, generous uh, space dedicated to the, the bio. It wasn't like three points, uh, but um, yeah, it was it was kind of like that. And uh, I'm, I'm sure things are much worse. And I do have, the, you know, the last chopper out of Nam feeling, but yeah. Um, it's, I think it's, it's still possible, you know, there's, it's, it's still people, you know, maybe it sounds like a boomer now, but it's, you know, it's, there's still people in there, I think, no? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 do hope it still works. I'm, I hope I'm not giving people terrible advice, but yeah, I mean, I guess it worked for me and, you know, my chopper was fine. So I guess get, <laughs> get your own chopper.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think if, if you're intentional enough, um, and you understand the adverse incentives and other corrupting factors at play in the current design of the system and you play the system, then you can absolutely make it at a nom. Uh, I think the problem is that people are getting played by the system and they're also like women are going on. They're serving up boot picks because it you know, generates attention. Then they end up pairing off with a lot of men who would sleep with them but would never date them then they get the impression that those are the men who would be willing to commit to them
0: now I know nothing about this stuff because of course I I was getting out of Dunkirk not Nam well actually closer to Nam but um, you get my point of course you know the boob stuff that, that was built for an era of there's only a certain number of men to see you but of course it's multiplied by the 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 way that the internet works. So it's again, it's an adaptive problem that the 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 boob the boob picks are, yeah, they're right. they're looking for the wrong thing
1: in that environment. in the other environment oh, I shouldn't have said anything. And they aren't. They're lazy eights and maybe these women are like a six or a seven. Um, and so then they're not willing as a six or a seven to date sixes or sevens who would be interested in marrying them. And then there's this sort of like broken dynamic where- a Boy, you know who that sounds like. You've all seen this.
2: All right, so let um, go ahead and
0: take
1: this down, ma'am. Men who make the kind of money you're talking about have options,
0: <laughs> and off Kevin Samuels goes.
1: A lot of like, we'll say like sevens and below of men have trouble finding anyone who's willing to go on a date with them and then women who are sevens and below have a lot of trouble finding any men um who are you know eights nines and tens who they think would be interested in them to ultimately marry them so a lot of people just end up alone
2: yeah yeah i think yeah i'm just saying this this stuff should be common knowledge but it is very counterintuitive and uh, a lot of people at least in, in the case of women you know, hope um, hope dies last in, in a lot of these things, and I know a lot of women. You know, essentially uh, stuck in the so-called friends with benefits hell. You know, just waiting on to be you know wife number five for some some strange guy who's you know maybe like just slightly more attractive than they are, um, and then you know they're just hoping that one day he'll just wake up and you know propose because I don't know she's really good in bed or something like that. <laughs> Um, it, I know it doesn't work like that, but you know, like I said, hope hope dies last.
3: I mean, I think we also need to be honest that we are having a bit of a masculinity crisis in terms of what it means to be a man in our modern society. It was very interesting to me uh, on some recent podcasts One people were saying, oh, he looks so soy. And I'm sorry, I have to apologize to your listeners. This is not my house. I'm staying at a guest house right now. I did not <laughs> choose this background speaking of looking soy. Um, or that he, they look like a lesbian couple. Um, and what it has, Made clear to me, um, I think think the guy is really smart. um, Is that the male role models we have in our society today are often the iteration of masculinity that men are when they are teenage boys. When a man is in a long term monogamous relationship and when a man starts to have kids, his testosterone level drops because his biology basically turns off suicide mode and is like, okay, now you're secure, now you have kids, we want to keep you alive a long time, turn off this high-risk, high-reward strategy. Um, And this sort of kinder iteration of masculinity, when people look for it in our society, they see so few role models that embody it, the first thing that pops into their head is, oh, lesbians, that's kind masculinity. Um, And... It's a real I mean you see someone like Andrew Tate right Which I, think- I I'm really surprised they don't have more
0: followers on YouTube I really am because although you, you listen to like I think a lot of his stuff would go really good in sort of little snippets because he, he just I mean it's sort at, at some point it's sort of like listening to machine gun it's just pa 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 and there's a lot of stuff in there
3: represents sort of the teenage boys ideal of what it would be like to be an adult man um whereas uh because men sort of go through this second puberty when i look at like his lifestyle it looks about as fun as blippy's lifestyle i don't know anyone here who has kids and blippy's like this this little kid who he's a he's a grown man but who like wears overalls and like dances around like um uh
0: now i gotta look this up oh it's 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 Wee herman playing it straight it's blues clues guy it's 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 wow billy Bee's in anaheim california well now i know just doing the googling for you
3: a fire truck or something and of course to a little kid it's like this guy is living in heaven oh my god he gets to dance around fire trucks all day um but as an adult like i see the pain behind his eyes and i'm like i know no <laughs> adult actually wants to live this lifestyle And if you are a dad looking at Andrew, (laughs) Blippi could make
0: bank, but every morning he lays in bed thinking, oh, I got to do it again. At least Mr. Rogers had dignity.
3: Andrew Tate's lifestyle. He is like the Blippi for teenage boys where you're like, nobody is enjoying this.
0: That's brilliant. Andrew Tate is the Blippi for teenage boys. That's really good.
2: Yeah, no, that's a, a very good comparison. I mean, it's uh, it, it it does seem like we we we've kind of stuck culturally on a certain archetype, which um, is is in a way not differentiated at all. And I think maybe you know people like Andrew Tate are kind of a reaction to the fact that you know the the, the baseline is very androgynous. You know, we're all the same type of. Cog in the machine type of person, yeah. the, the ideal producer consumer who has to go out and and get the status points, get the money, um, and then I guess you know in our spare time we fetishize these cargo cults of masculinity of, of I mean even. I mean, Andrew Tate is essentially the mirror image of Kim Kardashian, which has all these like hypertrophied aspects of femininity. I mean, it's, you know,
0: that was brilliant, too. That was brilliant, too. I never sort of put Andrew Tate and Kim Kardashian next to each other in terms of the um, they've got all this they've got all this plastic masculinity and femininity. And of course, Andrew Tate is a pimp. I mean, what I've heard of the dude—the dude is a pimp. That's what a—that's what he is. And you know, as frankly as a father, I have like zero respect for a pimp because a pimp isn't even a man. Um, a pimp, a pimp is a, a pimp is a bully who makes money off other women's misery. So, but again, back to the profilicity, Part of it, again, in this screen world reductive worlds must accentuate what the the biases of their world. And so Kim Kardashian, Andrew Tate, they have to accentuate certain things because that's what the that's what the medium forces that, that's that's the combination between the medium and a hierarchy. so it's gonna it's gonna sort of run it up the hierarchy and that's that's what we get.
2: They're, they're golden calves of, of whatever uh, is missing in our in our core culture. That's brilliant, especially the golden. That's, that's that's really good culture, um, and it it really you know I feel like you know what's missing here is just a, the, the the pragmatism of of what it would take to uh, to continue our culture because you know the, this this um, infinitely malleable producer consumer. You really—he can't think above the the timeline of his his own life. I mean, production consumption happens within, you know, mostly youth. You know, because even even old age is very much questionable under the producer consumer model. Because yeah, what are you? What? I, you know, my wife and I.
0: We tell our kids, we say, we don't need anything for Christmas. Please do not buy us anything. All we want, you know, it sounds so cliche, like a drippy love song, but all we want for Christmas is you at home. It's all we want for Christmas these days. We're at that point in our lives where we look around at our kids and we just want to see you. We just want to spend time with you. We just want to know you. It's all we want. We don't don't need you buying any stuff for us. We just want, you know you to visit us in the nursing home. So it's interesting, again, because now I've listened to a little bit of Simone and Collins' videos, and there's a lot about the perpetuation of the culture. But of course, that has to be understood because all of them are sort of acknowledging that the culture is in something of a death spiral. So it's like, well, is, do you really want the perpetuation of the culture? And And there's sort of a... Again, there, so this is all pitched to sort of pragmatism. But so often what is kind of missed in pragmatism is that the ideals and the goals are implicit. And this this culture that is in a death spiral, this is the one you want to preserve? Or ought you to think about actually improving the culture into one that is worth saving? And then suddenly you're into the much more religious landscape. Not a religious landscape that, well, we have to be religious so that culture must be preserved. Well, this, that, this isn't the culture you want to preserve. You don't want to keep producing a culture that, that shoots Andrew Tate and Kim Kardashian up the hierarchy. That's not the culture you want. So then you have to do the much harder question of, what is a good culture what what is what is the culture that ought to be preserved what is what what culture is pointing towards is is pointing towards eternity
2: what are you going to consume you know you can't really yeah. play the status games very much so you've got about a like 30 40 year window where you you can be a good participant in this culture um, and I feel like you know it's it's really short-changing not only older people but Our entire future, the entire horizon of what's coming after us—you know—it's almost making us blind to 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 what's coming, and that's that's what I appreciate about you because you're thinking about this (laughs) very deep. Let's talk about the collapse of
3: civilization. Yes, please. This
1: is a very important
3: (laughs) topic. Uh, So this is something I really got. I was a venture capitalist in South Korea, you know, and I'm always now again. Hearing Origins,
0: why, Paul, do you do these Randall's Conversations? Now, some of you are saying, I haven't seen a lot of Randall's Conversations yet. Yeah, yeah, that's because I was traveling, and it's also because I'm putting the Randall's Conversations into the $3 membership thing. Is that is that a money grab? No, not really. Some of them are never going to be sprung from there. Others of them are sitting there, and at some point, I'm going to feed them out into the, the general channel just so that that's going to even out the pauses. And so some of you are going to say, yeah, then I'm going to see reruns because I'm a $3 member. Life is tough.
3: Um, Always having to predict the future of the economy there and everything like that. And if you look at their current fertility rate, which is 0.8, that means for every, and it's dropping every year, so it might be like 0.7, then next year it looks like. That means for every 100 Koreans alive today, there's going to be between like 6.6 and 4.3 great-grandchildren. So... We're looking at a 95% population collapse in the next century. And I went and I brought this to the other partners at my firm. And I was like, uh, there is no economy here in the future. Like, what are we talking about long term Korean economy? There is no long term Korean economy. Like, the way we structured our, our economic system doesn't work with this kind of collapse. Um, and what they basically said is, oh, yeah, we all know, we all know about this, but like, we've just chosen collectively not to freak out about it. So just pretend like it's not the case. And when I came back to the US, we are today where Korea was in the nineties, but we're seeing all the same trends here. It's like a black mirror episode or like a sliders or something. I got to travel back in time 20 years and I get to warn people about the things that, that I notice. One is there is no point at which people really start to panic. And by the time people start to panic, it's too late. So if you have a society where 80% of the population is over 50, you know, they may still have 50 years of their life left, like half their life left, but they're not having any more kids. And so if you wait until that happens to sound the alarm, it's already game over. You know, you've got to sound the alarm way before you notice this in population levels.
0: This is so interesting and it's well argued. Catastrophism is big business. It really is. Now, I watched this video the video that I'm talking about with Malcolm and Simone Collins. And I was thinking about this video that I watched with Brett Weinstein. And they're all talking about the wokeism as sort of the collapse of civilization. I mean, the, the truth is, there's always these, all these threats all over the place. Well, you know, the people on one side say, oh, climate change is going to do you in. No, the people say, nah, it's not going to be climate change. It's going to be wokeism and what that had. And, 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 oh, if we had a chance to go back in time and, and warn them in the past
5: way if we take your question about what could we have said to the people of 1995 to get them to save us from the world of 2023 um, the the coming calamity that is going to happen if we just simply embrace the religious doctrines philosophies and values of the past and hope that we can now ride out the storm that's when we could stop now by having a conversation that says, look, it was wrong to dispense with these compendiums of wisdom that we've been handed in all of these traditions. But those compendiums of wisdom were built by natural selection in an environment we no longer live in. And so we are are stuck in a terrible problem, which is you can't embrace the solutions of the past to get out of the problems of the present and you can't abandon the solutions of the past because they're outdated, because you'll end up abandoning all sorts of stuff that matters in ways you don't know about. So that is, I I don't want to candy coat it. Yeah. There's no simple solution to that that doesn't involve um, repeatedly injuring ourselves as a civilization as we discover which fraction of those traditions is still relevant, which fraction has become uh, toxic and inappropriate, what it should be replaced with. That's a... Now, in a lot of ways,
0: Malcolm and Simone do sort of re- belong, sort of right next to Brett Weinstein, even though they're looking at completely different catastrophes. Because Brett is, you know, if you've watched any Brett, he's he's, you know, he's he's on the one point again and again and again and again about you know the the assassin genetics and we have to transcend them. And you know, I've I've dealt with a lot of this idea before. And what's fascinating is that. Malcolm and Simone are saying, you don't have to, you don't need a time machine. Actually, if you look at this now and you look at the numbers now, but this is a, this is a kind of a slow thing that there's nobody, nobody recognize it. But of course it's a different thing than what Brett is talking about. So basically you got all these sandwich board guys, the end is near. And if you throw Eric Weinstein into the mix, then you really have a group of sandwich board guys. And it's not without (laughs) truth. Because, so you take, you take Malcolm's, um, you take Malcolm's doomsday that, no, we're just doing it to ourselves slowly. And if you have a population which is more than half over 50 years, yeah, you're, it's just math to, and add that to, to, to Eric and Brett. But you also have to throw C.S. Lewis into the mix with life in the atomic age and, Please tell me when humanity wasn't hanging
3: from a thread. Nobody is enjoying this.
2: Yeah, no, that's a, a very good comparison. I mean, it's uh, it, it, it does seem like we, we're, we've we kind of stuck culturally on a certain archetype, which... Um, Oops!
0: I gotta kill that one. Gotta kill that one. When you have too many tabs over, sometimes you forget exactly which one you're playing
3: where. Um... And the other thing was, is that there, there is no natural floor. Actually, the U.N., or I think it's the U.N. or the world, I don't remember, but one of the major organizations that tracked this, they used to believe that no country could fall below repopulation rate. So in all their data, it would just show everything plateauing when a country hit repopulation fertility rate. That means that they're having enough kids just to repopulate the number of adults. If you look at the world today, people are like, oh, this is a developed world problem. Uh, no. No, if you look at Latin America as of two years ago by UN statistics, so like a lot of progressives they are like, oh, we'll just import immigrants, right? You know, in, in the US at least. And it's like, did you not know that like as of two years ago, Central America, South America and the Caribbean collectively fell below repopulation rate. In fact, on average, a country falls below repopulation rate today when the average citizen is earning over $5,000 a year. So the only countries that are really uh, uh, massively above repopulation rate are, are desperately poor countries. Um, and so the question is, yeah it's got my attention is well how do we maintain uh, if it turns out that like prosperity gender equality education and access to technology uh uh create cultures where um that are just unstable intrinsically like what does the future of our species look like and that's what we're really focused on and and how do we prevent that that's why we started the pronatalist foundation and why we wrote The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, which was our latest book, because like a lot of people, they first hear this and their first thought is, oh, give people money. But like, it turns out the less money you have, the more kids you have. So that's like not the answer. And like when you have free childcare, like in Europe, the countries with free childcare actually have lower fertility rates. And oh, cash handouts don't work either. Like uh, Hungary spent like 5% of its GDP last year on this, and they got fertility rates up by like 1.6%, when like they were falling by like 2% a year before that or something. So uh, it turns out the only real solution is probably religion. Um, and that's something we go into a lot.
2: Yeah,
0: and that makes this very interesting, right next to Brett Weinstein.
2: I mean, it, it's um, just just kind of like a lot of things on this podcast. I learn mostly from my own example, and I know my kind of conversion to pronatalism has been cultural, if maybe just maybe tangentially a little bit religious, uh, but not, um, not not purely so. Um, so, I mean. This seems to be, uh, and and also knowing the, uh, the examples of other people around me, I know, you know, people coming from families with you know their parents had five or six brothers and sisters, are now this um, have decided that they don't want children, which is very much a, a cultural thing as well. I mean, this is not like you know these these were people who you know they they frolicked and multiplied very well up until five minutes ago, um, and I know. I know exactly the software these 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 women and men have been downloading because I was kind of you know marinating in it myself until I realized that wait a minute <laughs> you know, I'm just like staring off the edge of the abyss here, um, but yeah I mean and I think that's that's an, a, a very interesting lever to pull I, I think you know what's what's a bit harder to do I think is the um, you know any sort of top down imposition of this stuff which I think you know we're talking about mega trends here. Um, I mean, how how do you see that? Because I mean, you've written you wrote an entire book about this. This is the pragmatist guide to, to crafting religion, um, which sounds very ambitious, <laughs> but yeah, how, how would this work? I mean, in practical terms.
3: I mean, we're rabidly against any sort of top down imposition. We just, one, it doesn't work and it always leads to evil. When you're as a government trying to decide who should have kids, who should breed, who should not breed, that always leads to evil. I'd like to preserve some aspect of our pluralistic society but any one couple that represents one culture and, and decides to join the pronatalist movement, decides to try to craft a culture that they can pass to their kids and that their kids want to maintain, can sort of save that cultural unit. Because, you know, if we have eight kids and our kids have eight kids and we do that for just eleven generations, that's more descendants than live on Earth today. You know, this is very the the, the problem is is the homogenization of the world today. So many unique cultures are dying out. So that's one problem. The other problem is the economic effects of this, because we have sort of structured our society like a pyramid scheme that requires constant growth. I mean, yes, you see this in social security, um, which is a problem, but you also see this in debt. You know, we as a society have been taking out debt at every level, which is fantastic if you're growing. You know, if you make an investment, you know, we used to be private equity people, if you'll make a $10 investment, right? And $2 of that is equity and $8 is debt and that grows by just 20%, so it grew by $2, my equity investment has grown by 100%, I mean, 100%. But if it shrinks by just $1, my equity investment has dropped by 50%. If it shrinks by just $2, my entire equity investment is wiped out. And this is kind of what happened to Detroit because their tax income started to go down and they were supporting a fire department pension and a police department pension from a time period because these were functionally debts because these weren't pre-funded pensions from a time when the city was much bigger. Um, And then you get the same problem with the sewer systems and stuff like that. So you begin to have shutdowns of water supplies and people hear falling populations and the first thing they think is cheap real estate. But when everybody knows that real estate is always declining in value, which you don't get as cheap real estate, you get a Detroit situation, you get endless urban blight because it it is no longer relevant to invest in real estate. Um, uh, Invest in the upkeep of real estate.
1: But if we're talking about like the basics of either how to, craft a culture slash religion that survives, that is what we would call intergenerationally durable. That is to say, like, it is past- Now, Now part of the real challenge of navigating almost any conversation
0: is the seemingly nearly impossible task of remembering what was just said in the conversation minutes before. Because all of the anxiety from the Weinsteins to many other people is, we want to preserve our culture. (laughs) And everybody's basically saying, uh, the culture's in a death spiral. Is that the culture you want to preserve? Or is there another culture you'd like to preserve? Oh, no, I'd like to preserve what I value in the culture and let the death spiral stuff, that stuff go away. Now, again, coming back to the whole religion question is fascinating because part of, and I haven't yet read their book. I did pick up their book, and I do have it on my Kindle, but I haven't yet read their book that I'm now you know, it's always kind of a horse race between all of the different little hobby horses that I'm interested in in any given moment. And obviously when I do a video, it both in some way satiates the desire, but also just reinvigorates some of the interest. But, but religion, both for the Weinsteins and for the Collinses at this point, is pragmatic. That, well, they can see the pragmatism in past religions because those have succeeded but then we need a new religion, but then you're back in this funny trap that we keep coming back to around again and again and again. I'd like to be religious, but I I really don't believe it. Sarah Hayter said something almost identical to that. And it's it's interesting that that's really where society is. I'd I'd like the world to be enchanted, but it's dead. I'd like this, but that. I wish we had a religion. Now, again, you're sort of in Donald Hoffman territory here where... The religion doesn't have to be true at all. It just has to make sure we continue to multiply like rabbits. But that's not necessarily such a good idea either because if the religion is just about human multiplication, the religion is also going to be guiding people in terms of how they should live and how they should behave. And, and that's going to have adaptive either positivity or negativity too. In other words, you can you can plan a religion that has everybody multiplied by rabbits, but if they're killing each other in some other way because of the religion, well, that's gonna be a problem. So it's 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 very interesting how all of these motivations, all of these projects motivated by self-preservation that see religion as instrumental. I'll have this enormous gaping flaw that if the religion doesn't actually deliver truth, and I don't mean just propositional truth, I mean all four Ps of truth, if the the religion doesn't actually, this is where we get back to Verveke and Peterson and and Logos, if the religion doesn't actually deliver on getting alignment with the Logos, to, to actually develop a culture that is going to be a culture of eternity, you're just gonna okay now we don't have the problem of reproduction but now we're back to the weinstein problems or we're back to because of course in some ways if you think about brett's you know brett's whole thing which he has said for a very long time i should find that clip that was a great clip this is this is this great clip from rebel wisdom five years ago where where brett he it hasn't changed any of this, of course. This is, the, this is the deep truth. And what's ironic about the deep truth is that the genetics don't need sort of a religion in order to multiply themselves beyond. This is just what they do.
5: An awakening to a deep truth. And I, the analogy I use is this. If you discovered that you were a robot and that you were sent to, I don't know, assassinate some person who was innocent. If you discovered that that was the explanation for you, you would reject your program, right? You as the robot. I'm sorry. Every time I hear this,
0: if you were an Intel chip and you discovered that the hard drive that you were connected with has Mac instead of Windows, You would reject Mac OS. No, you'd play
5: Mac OS. (laughs) That had been given decency in order to get by everybody so you could commit your assassination would say, actually, I prioritize the values, and I reject the mission that I've been sent on. That's who we are. We are that robot. We are on a genetic mission that is absolutely unacceptable. How would you just just succinctly define that genetic mission? That genetic mission is... is Just propagation at all costs? Propagation of your particular genetic spellings. And here's the key, it's a little subtle, but if you and I have different spellings for a particular, let's say a respiratory enzyme, and let's say that respiratory enzyme functions better in you than in me, it's 10% more efficient. My respiratory enzyme still wants your respiratory enzyme to go extinct because it doesn't care about the function. It cares that that spelling is advanced, and your spelling is in conflict with my spelling. As long as yours is around, there will be fewer copies of mine. So our genomes are actually interesting. I mean, the, if I can just be clear about it, the mind fuck of the whole thing is that the entire evolutionary story is the cosmic spelling bee, and it ends in genocide. Right? Mm. Once you realize that that's what you are, that you're built to advance your genetic spellings into the future generations irrespective of what they spell and that under circumstances like these we can afford to be decent to each other, but if things were different, one of us would be putting the other in a gas chamber? No way, I want no part of that and neither do you. So when people realize that that's really what they are, they are built to be nice when it makes sense to be nice and they're built to be genocidal in circumstances when genocide is the thing, then the question is, well, all of the things that you actually value, how consistent are they with being that robot on that mission? So, it sounds like you are sort of saying, at our root, we are nasty, brutish, and short, <laughs> right? The, the old selfish gene kind of thing, compared to some ascensionist or triumphalist, clearly you know, it's very prevalent in the self-help, popular psychology space. We are on the frothy edge of, of, of realizing our true natures as you know, spiritual beings, blah, blah, blah. Um, is that something you don't hold out hope for, you feel like at root? We are just self-oriented robot programs. Is, what, what's, what's our shot at redemption? Do we oh, have one? I, it's easier. It's easier than you would think because the fact is, I'm telling you, we are that robot on that mission. Once you know that that's your mission, you could just reject it. Right? I'm, not, I'm not putting anybody in a gas chamber. I just won't do it. Right? I don't care about th-
0: Again, it's Again, it's this strange Gnosticism. But now we're back over here. And now we're basically saying, oh, what we really need is a religion that's going to energize us so that we, and then it's like, well, won't, won't we then be sort of, so remember, the, the one thing that Brett, if you if you go back to his talk with Alistair McGrath, the one thing, that, again, the one thing that I really appreciate about Brett is that Brett, in fact, sees, oh, so, so you've got the genetic track and then you have the mimetic track. And I think Brett's a little naive about the way he sets up these two things. But, so these two are all about the mimetic track at this point. What we need is what we need is a religion that's going to, and the, and the truth is that, I, I, you know, one question for them is, well, how can you be be so sure that there isn't in fact a religion right now that perhaps, is one of the religions that's doing okay, but when things fall to a certain realm, that religion isn't going to sort of kick up again. Because what we usually sort of... Was it Foucault who talked about the fact that we really only sort of have a memory of like 40, 50 years? And we're usually talking about like the our grandparents' generation or our parents' generation. That's always the generation we're responding to. How do you know that 40, 50 years, in fact... Um, certain religions and it'll probably be the main religions that are already at play are going to in fact continue to proliferate and they're going to talk about the jews a little bit here they, they spend a fair amount of time talking about the jews in israel and that's going to be really interesting for some of the israeli audience in this little corner
1: on from generation to generation and there are future generations or to reinforce an existing religion to make it intergenerationally durable in the face of globalization and modern technology and prosperity, which is kind of the big sort of cliff for many existing religions, where they're just like not able to survive in this modern environment. There seem to be like two simple keys to it. And I mean, our book is very long and goes into a lot of detail, but there seem to be two basic components. And Malcolm, you might wanna clarify this further, but if I were to break it down, it would be one, find a reason why people would want to have kids and that could be build a culture where everyone lives off the grid and literally you have to have kids because you need farm hands and like a retirement plan um or it could be you know build a culture that really idolizes having kids and that that celebrates and elevates parenthood and makes it look really cool you know there are different levers you can use to do this um and then the other element of an intergenerationally durable culture is it imparts fitness, and that's two types of fitness, obviously, like one form of fitness is people who practice it have surviving offspring, clearly. The other part of it, though, is ideally it imparts some kind of advantage. Either within its own ecosystem or within a larger ecosystem, um, that could be, for example, many religions impart greater mental resiliency, um, better physical habits. You know, like literally better, li- like day-to-day fitness, um, but also professional fitness. You know, think about Latter-day Saints who are often sought-after sales hires um, because they, you know, if you've been on a mission and you've been like pitching a kind of hard-to-pitch religion to people in another language, like course you can pitch sass like that's easy um so those are the
0: and i love that example too because when you start thinking about this you say well the the actual i mean the latter-day saints and the muslims have a similar problem they they have different problems in some ways because of course latter-day saints are so new and the muslims are so old but both of them have real issues with their foundation stories and the thing about the latter-day saints foundation stories is that You're really hard pressed to find, you know, these 10 lost tribes of Israel running around the United States. And if you know any history about the burned over district in upstate New York, you know that all these ideas are sort of circling around there and yada, yada, yada. But basically what everyone is saying here is it doesn't really actually matter the content of the religion. It just matters the payout. But once again, that's an extremely short sighted thing. Because you're going to go full hand, wives, tail on this thing. I mean, religions are, successful religions are very interesting things because they do, sort of like Brett Weinstein talks about in terms of mimetic genetics, they do travel through time and they do evolve as they travel through time. And for for a religion to actually travel well through time, they both have to, you need things that stay the same and things that evolve and adapt. And it's a it's a very complex little dance that goes on with respect to it. And and what's interesting is that both the Collins and Brett and Heather and probably Eric too, are they're looking through it through the frame the evolutionary frame, let's say, and well, whatever frame you lo- use to look through something, that frame is going to select what you see and what you value.
1: The two elements, and so it's, it's pretty simple. Motivate people to have kids and make them, give them a competitive advantage.
3: Yeah, so to follow up on something she was saying, where she's like a lot of religions, I think people aren't familiar with the statistics here, which is religion is the single thing that protects people from fertility collapse the most, but it is still eroding in the face of our modern toxic culture. You look at something like Mormons, by current statistics, they've probably fallen below replacement rate, or they will within five years. You know, and I say when Mormons have fallen below replacement fertility rate, that's not, you know, the canary in the coal mine dying. That's when the miner's skin is bubbling off. You know, you are in deep again the, the dude is good
0: um you know i might have to take he, he's a very clever man it's, he's really good chris williamson talked about the fact of you I mean both you both
3: got to get the idea and you need the meme and this guy does this guy's very sharp when the when the mormons fall below our population rate um but some cultures seem to be really resistant for prosperity induced fertility collapse. And keep in mind, we're talking about prosperity induced, we're not talking about the countries that are hand to mouth starvation, they still have really high fertility. Uh, But um, in the prosperity induced ones, like one country that is just like off the charts, good with fertility is Israel. Um, And uh and you actually see this around conservative jewish cultures if they are one of the most resistant cultures to fertility collapse a lot of people think amish culture is resistant to fertility collapse but it's really not uh, anabaptist culture more generally so it is a little more resistant to fertility collapse than other cultures but the primary resilience comes from being sort of air gapped a cybersecurity term i.e it when they use cell phones um they also have fertility collapse but when they don't use cell phones they don't have fertility collapse which It's the cell phone!
0: Now, now it's interesting, of course, because in terms of our conversations with the Israelis in this corner, they are the ones pointing out that, yeah, we had a whole bunch of these immigrants, really religious immigrants, who moved to Israel, and they are having all of these kids, and they're studying Torah the whole time, so they're hyper, hyper religious, and they're really reproducing fast, but... They're doing it on the dime of the state. And the rest of the Israeli population, a good bit of which is secular, a good bit of which is not Jewish, are looking at them and saying, I'm not sure we're going to continue to pay for that. And that's when, of course, things are going to get interesting. In other words, part of the difficulty, relevance realization, it's frames, it's trying to figure out what's going on. You look at these very religious Israelis and say, well, they're multiplying like rabbits. That that must be the... But again, you're selecting the ideas in really an isolation to, from all of the other ideas. And if the state of Israel gets to the point of saying, yeah, we're not going to subsidize that anymore, what will happen? Now suddenly you're going to have a whole bunch of all the same pressures that a lot of other people
3: are having to begin to reduce this dynamic which I think shows where this is coming from in our society. Um, If you view, this is something Simone was talking about, if you view religions and and, and more traditional cultures as this aspect of humanity that evolved alongside us to sort of enhance our individual fitness, you know, that's why they figured out all the stuff that progressives are just now realizing, like, oh, yeah, you should have arbitrary self-denial rituals from, like, Ramadan to Lent to Feast of the Firstborn. You know, every ancient culture is like, yeah, you should, like, not just eat whatever you want all the time you should have arbitrary fasting rituals and stuff like that and now just now uh, you hear like oh i'm on my juice cleanse or i'm on my fast today and like they figured this out after throwing it out for 50 years it's like what else did you guys throw out but anyway um uh the, the again the parallels between these guys and brett they're super interesting it, this is like a traditional healthy cultural unit But you have this thing that we call wokeism, but it's more than wokeism. It's like this virus that exists behind our world today um, and evolved out of religion. We actually argue in our book, it evolved out of Hicksite Quakerism, um, but it's not a full one. It can only survive by parasitizing on healthy cultures because it doesn't motivate a birth rate. And so it has to very aggressively get into things like the education system to convert people from these healthy cultures that are still motivating high birth rates um, to survive uh and it's 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 really scary because it is so 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 effective at reaching our kids you know as you say you you have friends even at reaching you you know you begin to normalize to what the virus says is normal and this is where i get to something you know you were talking about how some conservatives may disagree with us or whatever i don't know but i consider myself a conservative right um and i think one thing that's great about the conservative party or 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 conservatism in general is that we have a diversity of ideological perspectives that come from our traditional cultural backgrounds that we are trying to preserve. Whereas the progressive movement is just sort of this virus. If I go to a far progressive Unitarian Universalist versus a far progressive, I don't know, some other far progressive Muslim or a far progressive Jew, and you scratch beneath the surface, many of their beliefs about morality, about the nature of the world are just the same.
0: This is a super interesting point.
3: If i go to a conservative muslim versus a conservative jew versus a conservative you know evangelical their actual views about how the world works are radically different yet they can work together um to to achieve a combined outcome and that's that's one thing i really respect. now what's interesting is that yeah they can but now we're sort of
0: back into questions about secularity this from jerry mueller's the mind in the market Come into the London Exchange, a place more respectable than a court. You will see assembled representatives of every nation for the benefit of mankind. These are the Jew, the, Maham- the the Muslim, and the Christian deal with one another as if they were of the same religion and reserve the name infidel for those who go bankrupt. Here the Presbyterian puts his trust in the Anabaptist. The Anglican accepts the Quaker's promissory note. Upon leaving these peaceful free assemblies, one goes to the synagogue for another drink. Yet another goes to have himself baptized in a large tub in the name of the Father through the Son to the Holy Ghost. Another, his son's foreskin is cut off, and over the infant he mutters some Hebrew words that he doesn't understand at all. Some go to their church and await divine inspiration with their hat in their hand, and all are content. A little earlier in the book on the Enlightenment, Voltaire's main concern was remarkably consistent through the course of his long career. He championed the pursuit of happiness, the expansion of individual freedom, the rule of law, and the use of human reason modeled on the methods of the natural sciences, there's the scientific lab leak right there, to challenge the non-rational claims of religious faith. Closely related to these concerns was Voltaire's long campaign against the Catholic Church and his antipathy towards the political claims of institutionalized religion. You can still hear this through Stephen Pinker quite clearly. Voltaire's significance for our topic comes from his popularization of two important themes, the legitimation on political grounds of the pursuit of wealth through market activity and the moral legitimation of the consumption of wealth. It was the former theme that he developed in the Philosophical Letters, a work of social and political criticism that marked the beginning of the French Enlightenment as a public force. Voltaire's defense of the market in the letters and later in his philosophical dictionary was politically was political rather than economic. Market activity was valued not because it made society wealthier, but because the pursuit of economic self-interest was less dangerous than the pursuit of other goals above all religious seletry. Again, this is a time in which they're, they're very concerned about religious people killing each other over religion. So let's just switch and have them all want to get rich. Because if they want to get rich, they'll stop fighting. And that's where all their interest will be. And won't that be great? And now we have Malcolm and Simone saying, you know what's at the heart of this? Wanting to get rich. Because once you get up over $5,000, your culture's in an economic nosedive. I once read something. Where, where did I read that? It's like, I think a guy was a Jew. and And like, he said really weird stuff. But it was sort of famous, you know? He said, like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Voltaire never would have said that. And then he said, you can't serve God
3: and mammon. Hmm. Hmm. Expect about the conservative movement.
2: Nice. I think it's also kind of a function of being of being out of power. I mean, you know, power at the center consolidates, and it's, it's very easy to to align with it. Even you know, there's a lot of people who maintain the the, the trappings of whatever you know ethnic flavor they have, and they're uh, you know like nominally Muslim or something. But it's it's pretty clear um, what exactly power demands of you now, just because it's it's in the it's in the water. I think a lot of people, like you said, you know, if you scratch them you know it's like you know the, the progressive ten commandments are just below, below the surface uh, it's because they're in they're in everything you know that's how that's how i know exactly what what software you know my my maybe not anti-natalist but but non-natalist friends are, are are on because this this has been piped in hot through every medium for you know since since we've had television i mean that's you know it's 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 pretty clear what you're supposed to believe and uh, if you're kind of agreeable, and if you're interested in status games beyond your own little village, which is a is kind of one of the problems that have uh, has led to uh, to kind of uh, fertility collapse here as well, um, because people are you know they're interested in what's going on in America. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm included in, in this group of people. Um, yeah, that's that's going to lead to to this, and it's going to lead to people essentially running the same moral and um, yeah, just. Um, having the same orientation. Here's the great thing,
3: though, I think, from 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 a lot of people's perspective, is this is leading to a genetic change. So the people who are sort of susceptible to this mimetic virus are essentially genociding themselves from the gene pool really aggressively. And if you look at the rate to which voting patterns, so like if you look in the U.S., the rate to which voting patterns correlate with um, uh, genetics, which is like 30 to 50%, and you look at differential fertility rates, we should see... A genetic shift, a a, a a a state one standard deviation shift, more conservative in voting patterns within the next century, at, at like a genetic level. Um, and but there's other negative genetics. Now this is what's so hilarious
0: because we just listened to Brent Weinstein say your genetics are doing this, and you just have to opt out of it. Now what it seems like we opt into into sort of Voltaire's decision, and that's killing us. And so the genetics are, the genetics don't really have much of a say. It's just fascinating the similarities and contrast between these worldviews and how it all fits together. Well, I I am out of time, but this, as is often the case, I start a video thinking, um, like I want to Poke around at these people. And then you start doing a little bit of digging. And that's like, I've done a little bit of digging offline too. But it's a little bit of digging. And I mean, a little bit of digging not in front of the camera. And then it's like, hey, wait a minute. These these guys are just like, these guys are just like Brett Weinstein. Alike, but different. And, and the mimetic and genetic levels are, are working in, in very interesting ways. And this utilitarian religion is working in very different ways. And sort of the way around, you know, religious, r- religious warfare, of course, Voltaire and the Enlightenment. And that's what secularism did. So, we don't have to fight about religion. Let's all get rich. Yeah, that's, that'll do it. That's the key. Anyway, I'll I'll be very curious to hear what y'all have to say about this video. So leave a comment.